What a great song that is, huh? Some of us are asking the question right now, can I vote for him? I mean, wouldn't that be incredible? And you know what? If we actually launched a write-in campaign and Jesus won, he wouldn't take it. Uh, we actually see the reasons for that in the text in front of us this morning. You know, I think some of us may be feeling like we want the whole election season to be over sooner than later, right? And some of the pundits are telling us that actually by Wednesday morning, we actually might know uh, who the choice, who our, what our choice will be in November between the candidate that the Republicans bring to the table and the candidates that the Democrats bring to the table. And so we'll know. We might know by Wednesday, essentially, uh, uh, who one of the two people that will be president of the United States of America. And some people say, well, informally, that title is leader of the free world. Isn't that interesting? Particularly with a number of the misgivings that you hear, at least it sounds like, uh, characterize the population in the United States right now in regards to this question. I'm not sure who I can trust in this sense that uh, candidates seem to be, at least the impression is, withholding information that they don't want anybody to know about, whether they're emails or business transactions or taxes or uh, transcripts for speeches. It's the sense of, you know, if you, if you knew those things, it would actually take away from my chances of being elected. There's less that they actually want uh, people to know. And it's a campaign season, and we look at the Gospel of Mark this morning, and you actually might say, well, it looks like um, Jesus is campaigning for something. And uh, I'm tired of the whole campaign season already. I'm not really interested in hearing anymore about somebody lobbying to be known and to be popular. But as we look at Mark chapter 8 this morning, we'll discover that there's a completely different approach that Jesus is taking to this whole process. It's entirely different than the campaign season that's in front of us on a number of levels. First of all, uh, the candidates that are running for office want to be the president of the United States, and Jesus is describing himself as king of the world. It's a little bit different, uh, it's a little bit different category, really. Jesus, in fact, is not interested in being the leader of any nation on earth. And that's what was such a part of the puzzle for the Jewish people, when they saw this person who actually could come as, as, as their king, he says, I, my role is to be king of the world. Uh, and beyond that, we see about Jesus, uh, he, he actually wants us to know everything that we possibly can know about him so that um, we, we identify and recognize exactly who it is uh, that's calling us to trust him. And in terms of popularity, Jesus actually is trying to be less popular, at least it seems that way. The irony is this, is that the more popular Jesus would become, the, less, uh, the more difficult it would be for him to actually fulfill his role. Uh, he doesn't want to be so popular uh, that people won't be a part of the process of him doing what he came here to do. And we'll take a look at that a little bit more as we look at, at this. But, and here's another piece that's entirely different about Jesus. The people running for office want us to trust them. And it may have implications someday in the future if we decide to. Jesus wants us to trust him. 
and it will have implications today. Uh, that's our intention as we look at God's word this morning, and he invites us by asking this question, will you trust me? It actually will change the way we act, think, live when we walk out of this room this morning. And that's where we're going to get to as we look at this text this morning. We're in Mark chapter 8. I'd like you, if you have your Bibles, if you would take your Bibles out and look at the text that we have. The text for our small groups actually starts in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8 where it talks about Jesus as the Messiah. But I actually want to go back a little bit earlier and see this episode that occurs before Jesus talks to his disciples about their lack of clarity in regards to who Jesus is. It's actually a healing, and Mark gives us more detail uh, than is normal. There are a lot of times he heals. He gives us some interesting detail about this particular one. So let's start there this morning. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Scholars have said that this man probably wasn't born blind as a result of this. It's, he, he regained his eyesight because he was able to identify and know what certain objects were. But he says, I see people, I don't see them very clearly at all. But then we go on and it says in verse 25, once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. That word clearly literally means to see to the horizons, to see at a distance, not just the stuff right in front of you, but to see everything and be able to see everything clearly. So we see this progressive movement towards his capacity to see everything there was to see. And then Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he said? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after that three days he must rise again. So I want us to look at this text, this story, and just try to pick out what is it that Mark wants us, what is it God wants us to know about the character of Jesus. And the first thing we notice immediately in this passage is this, Jesus wants us to know him. Jesus wants us to know him. There's nothing about him that he wants to have hidden. Uh, he actually thinks it's the best possible option for us to know him entirely. And, you know, there are data points for that. I mean, look at this. I mean, obviously he does. I mean, a, a book this big so that we would know exactly what God is like, what Jesus is like. And it's filled with stories and accounts of where he acts and how he works and how he's engaged with people. It's more story than it is prescribed. You better do this, you better do that, you better do this other thing. He wants us to, to know him. 
to know his character. And you say, you know, I, I hear you saying that, but I mean, did you look at the text right there in verse 26? Jesus is telling this guy who had just been healed of blindness to, you know, you know, go to jail, go directly to jail, jail don't cross, you know, that, that analogy doesn't work in this case, but go home. Don't, don't be telling people about this. And then you get to verse 30, and he says the same thing to his disciples. So what's this thing, Mark, where you're saying that Jesus actually wants to be known? But look at the story. Uh, Mark does this extraordinary thing, actually. He takes the details of one miracle just before he asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And what's the miracle? After the fact, after all of this happened and Jesus is risen from the dead and they really know who Jesus is, Mark says, must have said, did, did, you, did you see what happened that day when he asked us that? Just beforehand, he healed a person who was blind, and he didn't do it like that. <laughs> he, he actually touched the man's eyes, pulled him aside, touched the man's eyes and say, How are you, can, can you see? And the guy says, yeah, but it's really pretty blurry. He continued to work with this man until the person could see absolutely clearly, to see to the horizons. And then... Jesus turns to his disciples essentially and says, and how's your eyesight? And then he works with the disciples and he works with those who don't see him clearly yet. He asks them this question, you know, who do, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, you know, they think you're John the Baptist or Elijah re returned and there actually was a there was a, a, a following of people who were looking exactly for that in Malachi. It says something about that Elijah coming back. And so they were looking for Elijah to come. So there's a possibility. Some people see you as the forerunner of the Messiah. And then they said, well, and then there are others who say that you're a prophet. Forerunner of the Messiah, I mean, that's a pretty big, prestigious thing to be. A prophet, you know, is a, it's a, it's a step down from that. Uh, and then he says, and who do you think I am? And Peter speaks for the disciples, says, you're, you're the Messiah. You're, you're the Messiah. And you say, wow, they get it. You see, there's this blurry perspective about who Jesus is and the people. And then the disciples come along and Peter speaks to them and says, you're the Messiah. But yet even in this, Jesus explains then that he's going to die. And Peter, wait, 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 wait. And you realize they don't even see clearly yet. But the reason why Jesus is taking all of this time with the disciples and with the people that he's around is so that they actually might know exactly who he is. Jesus, Jesus wants you to know him. Every single thing about him. There's nothing that he wants to have hidden along the way. He wants us to know completely who he is. And I think there's a sense in a popular culture that if you're going to become a Christian, you're going to have to turn off half of your brain. You know, people who are just kind of somewhat ignorant or not very well educated actually are those who follow Jesus. Ironically, sociologists have, have, have done research and they've discovered that among those that follow the Christian faith, 
Uh, they're actually a little bit better educated in our population than those that don't. Not much, it's not dramatic, but that stereotype that they must be the people that really aren't very smart just doesn't, just doesn't hold water. In fact, the reality is, is that Jesus wants us to turn on our brain completely. That he, we would know him entirely. And people that actually use their brains and, and wrestle with those questions decide that there's something about him that merits more than their attention, merits their trust as well. That this is actually what God wants. God says, I want you to try me. I want you to test me. I want you to scrutinize me. I want, I'm going to work with you so you know exactly who I am. You know, we had a, a, a season in our life as a, as, a, uh, as a family where this became relevant to our older daughter, our oldest daughter. We were, she was in her senior year of high school. And the questions about the character of what it meant to follow Jesus and God and all of that were just mounting. And, and we were around the dinner table and we pray before we eat. And um, I noticed that as we were all bowing our heads to pray, our oldest daughter just kept her head up and just kept her eyes wide open. And um, Beth and I noticed it. And we went to our oldest daughter and she says, Kate, what's going on here? And she said, I just don't think I believe it anymore. Just don't think so. Now, you know, that's not a great thing for the pastor of a church, right? You know, so initially there's inclination, oh no, are people going to find out about this? That eventually moved to this longing that Kate would actually find out about Jesus. And this realization that, you know what, that's part of my story. I remember I asked questions when I was in high school and into college and into grad school. I, I'm not sure what I think about this. And, Kate and, and Beth and I spent some time with Kate and said, Kate, number one, we are so glad you're asking those questions. Because if you don't, you may find yourself embracing a faith that is an inch deep and it will not endure the challenges of life. So you just go right ahead. And if there's any way we can help, we'd be happy to, but we're not going to mess with this thing if, if you've got to do it some other way. And you know, that's not like a high-risk proposition because God lets us know he wants us to know who he is. He's got nothing to hide. And he's going to work with us any way he possibly can as we ask all of those questions so that we can move from this blurry, blurred, distorted perspective about who he is and who we are and the way the world works to one that actually allows us to see the horizons and know him for who he is. Jesus wants us to know him. He wants us to know him. He wants to move beyond this notion that they had that Jesus was a wonderful miracle worker. And, and then you discover if he's such a good miracle worker, why is he leaving towns with people who are still sick in them? Why is he leaving them behind? It's because that's not all of who he is. He's not merely a miracle worker. Nor is he merely a political figure. And that was the other misunderstanding that people had. 
And this is why Jesus is wrestling even with his disciples, and it's why they don't quite understand when he talks about having to die. You know, Peter says, you're the Messiah, and, and Jesus commends him for that, but then he immediately calls himself, did you see that in the text? He calls himself the Son of Man. What's that all about? And we get to the second part of this sentence. Jesus wants us to know him as the Messiah. The Messiah as God describes him, not the Messiah as the word Messiah, the label Messiah was embraced in that culture. And this is where part of the rub is actually around this word. The word Messiah is the Hebrew word Messiah. In the Greek, it's called the Christ, same different, different uh, languages. And in the Old Testament, it's a reference to the anointed one. And so we see examples of what the anointed was in the Old Testament. And originally, early on, it was a person who was anointed by God, blessed by God, and given a particular task to accomplish, and given gift, uh, gifts to be able to accomplish it, and the empowerment to be able to see that it was done. And there were people that were anointed. This is why you hear Christians sometimes say, boy, you're just so anointed. It's a sense of you, you have a call of God on your life, you have capacities God has given you, and he's empowering you to accomplish it. And so that word can be used as the anointed one, but by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, we discover that it takes on more than just simply that character of any person, remarkable person used by God, to the one who is the ideal king. It comes, it comes packaged with that, and you can see it in Daniel chapter 9 in particular, it talks about this ideal king that would come and would restore Jerusalem and would restore Israel as the Messiah, the extraordinary one that stands out above all others. But the problem with that was, in the Jewish culture, in a place where they needed national power again, the word Messiah meant a national figure. It's not that Jesus said, I am not the Messiah. Look at chapter 1, verse 1, and it says that you know that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, that's what the whole book is about. But the problem was, is that the word Messiah was misunderstood. So Jesus actually doesn't even use it. I think there's some seven times in the Gospel of Mark where the word Messiah is used. Three times in reference to something that Jesus is saying, but never does he directly connect it with himself. Instead, what he does is he uses this phrase, the Son of Man. Some 81 times in all of the Gospels, Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. He pushes away from Messiah, and he talks about it, and, and he will declare himself to be it. The apostles will, the Gospels will, but there's such a possibility of being misunderstood that he takes this word out that there will be no misunderstanding about and he uses this phrase, the son of man. Now we say, wow, he's, uh, he's describing his humility, that he's just one of us. Well, we might say that, but it's much better to investigate before we assume. And if we look at the word son of man, we actually discover in the New, Old Testament that it is loaded with power and loaded with a character that we might not initially get. In the book of Ezekiel, it's mentioned some 90 times. Perhaps the most helpful reference to the Son of Man is in Daniel chapter 7. 
And if you have your Bibles, you actually might want to turn there. In Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, we see a reference to the one who will come as the Son of Man. This is the word Jesus embraced. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Listen to this. In my vision, this is Daniel speaking here writing, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And Jesus said, I am the Son of Man. I am that one. I am the one who comes from the, heaven, comes from the heavenly realm. I am the one who at the end of time will bring a kingdom on earth to the oppressed people of the earth, all of the nations of the earth, I will bring a kingdom that will never be destroyed and all of the nations will worship me and my dominion will be an everlasting dominion. This is who I am. Boom. I want you to know exactly who I am and I want you to know what it means for me to actually be the anointed one. And let me refer you to the text of the Old Testament when the prophets said one would come as the, 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 the son of man. This is who I am. But Jesus goes a little further and eight different times when he speaks about the son of man, he links it with the need for the son of man to suffer and die. That was a surprise. That's why Peter was having such a hard time with it. I get this about your kingdom. In fact, we're really excited about it. Um, but dying? What is that all about? Eight different times there's reference to Jesus as the Son of Man, and it is linked with the fact that he must suffer and die. And we see it right here in this passage. So we get to the completion of the reality of what we see here about Jesus. Jesus wants us to know him as the Messiah whose love requires that he die for us. I must die, Jesus says. And as we read scriptures, we discover that his reason for dying comes out of his love for all of us. I must die. There are a number of reasons why he must. The first is this, is when he describes himself as the Son of Man, all of the religious people would know exactly what he was saying and be offended by it. Jesus would die. He must die because of the hostility that would be created by him declaring to be God himself in a crowd that thought that that was absolutely um, um, uh, contrary to what he should say. He must die because of the hostility that would come along. He must die as well because of the character of who he was. Uh, is there any question that we have that Jesus couldn't just walk away from swords and weapons and, and, and pummel any, any army standing in his way? No. He absolutely had the capacity to be able to do that, but it wouldn't be consistent with his character, would it? 
I must die because of the hostility. I must be, die because my purposes and my character will not allow me to be what I am not, even when an army comes against me with swords and spears and hatred in their heart. I will die. I will give my life. And then there's that third part of it, and it is, it is because my death fulfills God's purposes um, for me and for you. It's a necessary ending. It's a necessary taking of a life because God's purposes cannot be fulfilled apart from that. Now, we knew this. We heard this. Jesus said this to Nicodemus. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Perishing is on the line. And the only thing that can eliminate that is that I die. You know, it's such a fascinating thing that we here have described for us the love of God that requires him to die and the holiness of God that, um, that is his stand against evil that, that destroys us and others. He wants us to live in his kingdom, but there are ways to live in his kingdom that are necessary for us to flourish. And so he's a God of principle and he's a God of compassion. Those two things don't fit together neatly. People matter to God, but personal holiness matters to God. And we know people matter to God, but this personal holiness thing matters too because God wants us to become what allows us to flourish. And he will stand for it. How can he stand for it and love us at the same time? Do you see where this whole thing is headed? There cannot be a good result. Either people or principles must be sacrificed, or so it seems. Let me tell you a story. This happened when uh, our kids were younger. We were on a field trip. It was actually a family vacation. We were out in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, and we were doing one of those. It was a really great trip. We went to see the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, and all. This, and we were coming back, and it had been a, a long time together, and we'd done a lot of traveling, and, you know, you get tired out, and you get a little grumpy, and we were in the minivan, you know, how, what those days were like, some of you. You know, there was a time when those were the only way to travel with families, and so we were in the minivan, and our girls were pretty well worn out, and we were, and we had a, one more stop that we were going to make, and... Um, our, the girls were just at each other. They were just at each other. You know, managing the challenges of a household are hard enough when you're in one place at home and you can kind of deal with stuff. Out on the road, boy, you don't have many options available to you. But the longing for your kids to grow and develop and mature in such a way that they don't harm each other and destroy relationships and that they're character grows into what we want them to be because they will flourish if they are, those things are still there. And so our girls were just going at each other. And finally, I just said, girls, I need to get your attention here. As parents, um, we have a, a, a requirement on us, actually, and that is that we make sure you stay alive. Uh, and that means food and water. And so we will provide food and water. It's our obligation to you. Food and water. But if you misbehave, that's the extent of it. And uh, from here on out to the rest of the day, it will just be food and water. Nothing else. No treats, nothing. Well, that was pretty sobering, actually. 
for all but our youngest. And she still thought, you know what? I don't, I don't know what was in her head, but she just kept going after her sisters. And it got ugly all over again. And I said, Meredith, for the rest of the day, food and water for you. That's it. I've had it, food and water. Well, our next stop was at this Amish village, and there's all kinds of stuff to see, and there was a place where they had incredible Amish ice cream. There are two people in our family that just cannot walk past ice cream without just dying to have it, and it's Meredith and me. And so um, we got there, and we were there with some friends, and everybody sees the ice cream store, and, and it's just like, well, of course we're going to get in line and have some. And I looked at Meredith, and I said, Meredith, food and water. Stinks, doesn't it? I mean, I, I didn't say that part of it. But. <laughs> food and water. And that's what I said. And it's going to be pretty hard. And Beth um, looks at me and she says, Mark, how about if we have an exercise in grace? And I thought, sounds really, really good to me right now. You know, I'm just seeing my youngest daughter there with, that sounds really good. And so everybody gets in line and orders their ice cream and we all gather together and Meredith is just there with her, her ice cream in her hand and then part of the entourage noticed, Mark, where's your ice cream? And I said, well, uh, it wouldn't be grace if I had some right now, would it? You see, grace is wonderful, but it's not inconsequential. Right? If the principles matter, the principles matter. If they're critical, then they're critical. And someone has to, by their life, or in this case, by their death, declare, in spite of my love and my longing for my people, my kids to flourish, it matters. I mean, can you imagine what would happen to my kids? They would say, if I had an ice cream cone in my hand, yeah, it really didn't matter, did it? No, I not only want my kids to enjoy the grace found in a day filled with an ice cream cone, but I want my kids to know that there's a future ahead of them that can only be flourishing if they understand there are things that will always matter. And so the one who knows us entirely looks at who we are and with eyes filled with grace realizes that his love will require him to die. Jesus wants us to know him as the Messiah whose love compels him to die for you and me. Why is this so important that we know this about Jesus? That we know his identity, that we know his purpose, that we know his love for us? Because the very next thing that Jesus asks us is this. 
Will you trust me? You see, this isn't just a, do you know who I am? He's the Messiah. And the next question will be, will you trust me? And he longs for us to say yes because he longs for us to live a life filled with flourishing that's possible because of grace. You know, you see, you see Christ like this and you would say, I would be crazy not to trust him. But the question for every single one of us is this. So will you? So will you? In our small groups this week, there are going to be opportunities to talk about this. In fact, one of the questions right here in the study guide is one that says, in what part of your life do you still fight with God for control. And I trust you'll have a great conversation about that as you get together. But I want to wrap this up by asking a question here to you and by encouraging you to think about what does it mean for us to know this about Jesus? Jesus wants you to know him as the Messiah whose love requires him to die for you. So I want you to do this. I want you to spend some time thinking about that and, and uh, asking God, what does this mean? So I'd like you to just drop your head and just close your eyes. You don't have any distractions. You don't see anything else going on with anybody else. And I just want you to just think about these truths. Jesus wants me to know him as the Messiah whose love demands that he die for me. Jesus wants me to know him as the Messiah whose love demands that he die for me. I want you to just keep your heads low and close your eyes. But I want to say something to a couple of you here this morning. I want to ask you a question. Are there any of you here that would say, this hits me right where I'm living right now. And if I were to speak frankly with you before this morning, I would say, I have not been willing to trust him. Either with the biggest thing with my life or with the other stuff, my present and my future. Here's what I want you to do. Well, everybody else is just thinking about what this means. Head lowered, eyes closed. If you're saying, Mark... I know God is inviting me to trust him today. And I, I will trust him. I'd like you to just, I'm not going to ask you to do anything more on this. I'd like you to just raise your head and look at me and say, today I'm saying yes to trusting him, either with my life or with some stuff in my life that I haven't trusted him with yet. And I'd like you to just look at me, make eye contact with me and say, Mark, that's what I'm doing. I'm saying yes to trusting Jesus. For those of you that are looking at me right now, I'm going to encourage you to, in your small group or with someone, 
let him know what you just heard God invite you into and the decision you made. Will you do that? Those of you that are looking at me, could I just see your heads not? I'm going to let someone know. I will let somebody know. Would you pray with me? Dear God, thank you so much for what you've done in this room this morning. Thank you so much for what you've done in your life for us. And God, there is, there is a longing that we all have to trust you. Uh, we would be crazy not to. So God, give us the capacity to do this as we worship you now. Amen.